Hello and welcome to the latest of our fortnightly Funds Fan podcasts brought to you by Interactive Investor in conjunction with Money Observer and MoneyWise magazines. I'm Kyle Caldwell, Deputy Editor of Money Observer, and with me as usual is Faith Glasgow, the Editor of Money Observer. Coming up in this episode, we have Bruce Stout, Manager of the Murray International Investment Trust. Bruce talks about how the dividend drought is impacting the trust and explains why the good performance of stock markets of late may be a sign that some investors are getting ahead of themselves. Also, at the end of this episode, we are joined by fund analyst Theodore Diloff, who will run through one of Interactive Investors' Super 60 fund choices, which among them include Murray International. But first off, as ever, Faith and I are going to run through a few investment news stories. Over the past week, we at Money Observer have been covering a couple of news stories related to Neil Woodford. The start of June marked a year since the LF Woodford Equity Income Fund put a fund suspension in place. But as we know now, the fund never reopened, with it being announced in mid-October that the fund would be wound up and money returned to investors. But as things stand today, Faith, there's still a lot of money left in the fund, isn't there? Yes, Carl, there is. There's about £500 million still in the fund. When it was actually suspended last year, the fund was worth around £4 billion. That was originally, as you just mentioned, a temporary arrangement, uh, giving Woodford a bit of time to, to sell some holdings and lease cash to return to, to investors. But the problem was that there were a large number of illiquid, unlisted stocks, and they were just very difficult for him to sell. So the fund has been closed. It was closed in October. Woodford was fired. And since then, there has have been a couple of repayments. The first one came out at the end of January, when around 2.1 billion pounds was returned to investors. That was about three quarters of the fund's assets at that point. Payments were made depending on the share class. Whatever share class you were in, you got back quite a lot less than the initial unit price of the fund at launch and also less than the current price, which was around 76 pence a share at that point. In March, there was another payment made with investors receiving between 3.1 pence and 3.9 pence per unit, depending on the share class. And that second sell-off raised about £143 million. That leaves around £500 million still in the fund and stuck in these illiquid assets, which are proving very difficult to sell, particularly in the current difficult economic climate, which makes them particularly hard to value as well as hard to sell. So really, it's about as difficult as it can be for people who are still waiting for that last chunk of money to, to be released. As we were preparing for this podcast um, at the end of last week, uh, 6th of June, there was a, another update from Link Fund Solutions, which is the corporate director for the fund. It said that an agreement had been made to sell 19 of the fund's healthcare assets in return for up to £223.9 million, But there was no detail in respect to how much the losses were on those investments, um, which I found disappointing. And if I did have money in the fund, which fortunately I don't, I was being frustrated not to be told that. However, investors were told that they would be updated by the end of July regarding when the next 
contribution to investors will be made. Faith, Link Fund Solutions um, is also facing potential legal action related to the LF Woodford Equity Income Funds. Could you tell us a bit more about that? The law firm Nelson's has said that it is actually looking into launching a legal action against Link. According to Nelson's, by allowing the fund to list several of its previously unlisted holdings on the Guernsey International Stock Exchange, Link may not have been fulfilling its fiduciary duty. The listing on the Guernsey Stock Exchange enabled the fund to get round rules that limit the number of unquoted or the percentage of unquoted companies that can be held in a fund to 10%. So the maximum is 10% you're allowed to, to hold in a fund. But by listing on the Guernsey exchange, Woodford was able to, to push that number quite a lot higher. Nelson says that li- listing on the Guernsey exchange allowed New Woodford to maintain a heavy weighting to unquoted companies far in excess of the 10% dictated by fund rules. Also, that Link was involved in those decisions to list Nelson's also says that it seems that Link basically apparently failed to address this problem of the increasing illiquidity of the fund at a much earlier stage, which it really should have done given given its role in the, in the whole administration of the fund. The um, listing on the Guernsey Exchange was made even more complicated because in practical terms, trading on such a small exchange is very thin. Nelson has argued that that in practice, this really didn't make the portfolio any more liquid than it was anyway. Given that they're considering taking legal action, it's sort of a watch this space and see whether further developments will be made. We are now going to turn our attention to other fund managers. On the Money Observer website, we recently covered a really interesting piece of research that names 10 fund managers that have beaten every rival fund manager since they started managing their funds. Rather than list every single fund manager name, I would like to direct you to the Money Observer website, which is moneyobserver.com. But just to give you a flavour, I'll run through the fund names so that listeners know which funds they were. And they were Marlborough Special Situations, the European Opportunities Trust, LF Mighton European Opportunities, First State Greater China Growth, Schroeder Asian Alpha Plus, Guinness Global Equity Income, MI Chelverton UK Equity Income, Bailey Giffers Japanese Smaller Companies, LF Gresham House UK Multicap Income, and finally the only bond funds on the list, Jupiter Strategic Bonds. Faith, the, the article has proven a very popular read amongst our website visitors. Does this perhaps tell us that staff or managers are still held in high regard despite the uh, Neil Woodford episode? It certainly has been an astonishingly popular story on the website, but I'm not sure, Kyle, that it necessarily points to the to the attractions of staff and managers per se. I mean, some of them certainly are very familiar names. We've got Giles Hargreave in there, who manages Marlborough Special Situations. We've got Alexander Darwall, who runs the European Opportunities Trust, amongst other names. But, you know, many of the other names are less familiar to many people. I think it's not so much about investors latching on to star managers as about a thirst for stories that flag up long-term outperformance through thick and thin. The fact that these managers have been able to produce such impressive 
outperformance over long periods of time, even though there may have been short-term blips during that time, I think is very reassuring for investors who are looking to the long term and looking for some somewhere where they can put their money for years and years and years and feel reassured that 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 they're in a, it's all in a safe pair of hands particularly given that it's hard for active fund managers even to beat the market over a single year only 43% beat the benchmark in 2018 according to the global equity manager performance report so really for these these 10 funds to have had such success, you know, even though they have had the odd off year, they really must have got it most uh, right most of the time over a very long time frame. So that's what I think investors have been so excited about with this story. Great. Thanks, Faith. For the next part of the podcast, myself and Faith are joined by Bruce Stout, manager of the Murray International Investment Trust. Bruce, thank you for joining us. Thanks for asking me. The obvious place to start is an issue that we at Money Observer have been covering extensively over the past couple of months, which is the dividend drought that has emerged as various businesses have cut, suspended or cancelled dividends to shore up balance sheets in response to coronavirus. Given your global focus, how much of an impact have dividend cuts had on Murray International? Yeah, I mean, this has been the biggest issue, obviously, for income funds. And um, I'll, I'll try and give you some idea of how we've been affected at Murray International, although it's quite difficult because we are only into the first sort of three months since the, the virus <clears throat> hit the markets. And obviously, you know, we've got the rest of the year to go and it will depend, I, I guess, clinically how things progress from here. I suppose the first thing you should really say about dividends is concentration risk. And I think everybody's aware that um, under normal circumstances, uh, the financial sector within markets, particularly banks and insurance, is a, a large part of, of dividends for some for some funds and trusts. And um, so if you don't have concentration risk and you, you're more diverse, um, then obviously that's an advantage. And, and Murray International is a very diversified investment trust. So from that point of view, um, that was a positive. The other sort of general thing I, I should really say is business model risk. And this is much more difficult because we've never actually been in a position before where we've voluntarily closed down society and, and, and closed economies, um, whereby suddenly some businesses have no revenues whatsoever. So companies that are maybe involved in tourism or casinos or cruise liners and some areas of retail and consumer discretionary just suddenly found that they had absolutely no business whatsoever. And obviously that's going to put a massive contraction on their cash flow. And so you have those companies that have got no cash and lots of debt and they'd be very quick to cancel dividends. You've had companies that have got cash and maybe no debt, but no visibility in their earnings and, and their business for the next uh, six or 12 months. And, and they've cancelled or suspended dividends. And then we've also had regulators and politicians coming in and suggesting to some businesses and companies that they should stop paying. So when you put all that together, no wonder it's been a very, very difficult environment for dividends. As far as my international is concerned, we do have a, a, quite a significant weighting in telecommunications, which have been relatively unscathed, um, as has our consumer businesses that we own. And similarly with technology. And we do have... Um, 
quite a large position in emerging market bonds, which also continue to pay nicely during this period. So it's difficult to, to quantify exactly what the impact is because we're quite early into it. But the diversification is definitely helping. There's various uh, statistics and um, forecasts regarding dividends. For instance, for the UK market, dividends for this year are expected to fall in the region of 30 to 40% compared to last year. But looking ahead into uh, 2021, is it going to be equally as challenging for um, global businesses, particularly as I assume some that have made changes to their dividend policies in the last couple of months are basing those decisions off the profits that were made in 2019? You're absolutely right. You know, um, the dividends in the early part of this year came off last year's earnings. Um, so next year's dividends, by definition, come off this year's earnings. And we know that for many businesses, this will be an extremely difficult year for profitability. Now, some companies will just have the option if they want to continue to pay and take the payout ratios away up over 100% and fund it somehow from capital or from other sources. <clears throat> but I think the key issue going forward, and this is very difficult to predict because we don't know how long the virus will be here. We don't know what the shape of recoveries will necessarily be. But I think the key issue here for many companies, particularly in the developed world, is what is the reset level for dividends after they've made an adjustment? Because it cannot be taken out with the context of the yield curve in the countries in which we find the businesses are located. And if that's the UK, then there's the 10-year guilt today in the UK is only 30 basis points, which is one of the lowest levels we've ever seen and therefore will that impact the sort of ultimate yield level that companies will reset their dividends going forward from here so rather than the higher the nominal higher that we've been used to and we may well see a much lower yield on many companies as the, the the starting point going forward Moving away from dividends, Bruce, how did Murray International fare uh, during the the market sell-off and the recovery of the past um, month and a half or so? I mean, obviously, we've never seen anything like this before. No. And and therefore, you could never model uh, in any way whatsoever as to how your portfolio would actually react to, to suddenly the shutting down of, of society. There was a particularly rough period, the third week of March, when the circuit breakers were on in the financial markets and the, and the credit markets as well kind of seized up. And for funds that had to raise cash, perhaps to fund uh, redemptions, then there was a lot of wild moves in stocks and some significant movement in stock prices on very low volumes. And Murray um, International just went down with the markets and everything else. But during the recovery phase, what recovered quickest were many of the tech stocks with the sort of internet and new tech type businesses. And Murray International obviously doesn't own those because they don't pay dividends. And therefore, for the first few weeks of recovery, Murray International kind of lagged the markets in general. But just in the last few weeks, it's, it's significantly recovered. And I think to the net asset value of, of 10.53 of yesterday, we're down in a total return basis about 7 or 8%, which given the magnitude of, of events happening, is not maybe as bad as what you would have thought if you'd seen the macroeconomic damage that's been done to the world. In that context, markets do seem to be way out of sync with, with the economic data that's that's been coming out recently. 
Do you think that investors have actually got a bit ahead of themselves since markets hit the trough on the 23rd of March? I saw that you commented in, a, in an update to investors that in April um, you had uh, that the investors had, had frantically bought into recovering markets despite ominous signs of a draconian corporate earnings collapse ahead. Is that still worrying you? It certainly does. I think there's a few things going on here. First of all, markets have been driven by liquidity and, and there's lots and lots of liquidity in the market. The size of the stimulus packages that government responds to in order to make sure that the credit markets didn't seize up have been absolutely huge in terms of liquidity boost. And therefore, that's on the sidelines. And we also know that many investment managers have got lots of cash and therefore they're fearful of missing out on a rally and, and that, that sort of self-fuels the rally as more cash comes into the market. There's also the interesting consensus-type view that the steeper a recession, the steeper the recovery, and this is sort of borne out from the experience of the GFC in 2008 and nine, when it was a very much a V-shaped inter-recession and out again. I think the consensus believes that that's going to happen again and therefore is very keen to drive stock prices higher. But there's no evidence whatsoever that it's the steepness of decline that leads to the steepness of recovery. It's normally the cause of a recession that dictates the shape of recovery because if it's a, a credit crunch or a, an overbuilding and construction-led recession, it can take years before you get back to the levels previously. So we have no transparency on what sort of recovery is coming and it may take much longer than people think. So from that point of view, markets are probably ahead of themselves uh, relative to the fundamentals that have not really started improving. But again, the psychology is that things are so bad that anything uh, that looks slightly better is being um, optimistically embraced at the moment and hence driving this market recovery. So, M. Bruce, I wanted to switch to emerging markets, which is obviously a big focus for Muddy International and yourself. A lot of people are tipping deglobalisation to become more of a trend following coronavirus. Yeah. Would this negatively impact emerging market growth and therefore the attractions of emerging markets if this was to take off? Yeah, it's become quite a theme, hasn't it? You know, the, the, the increase in nationalisation, uh, the increase in sort of deglobalisation and, and protectionism. I think it may actually, if it does come to pass and, and that those trends start to gather momentum, then I think it might actually have the exact opposite effect. Uh, and actually you'll find emerging markets in Asia will do better. And the reason that they say that is that if there is increased protection and deglobalisation, then normally what happens is you get lower growth and higher inflation because markets don't, or the trade of goods and services doesn't run freely. There is nothing priced in bond markets in the developed world for inflation. And if inflation starts to creep back and bond yields go up, um, then growth will be very scarce indeed in the developed world. Because remember, this has to be paid for as well. And the debt load has just gone up significantly because of the virus. And we'll have to come out of, of spending through taxation somehow. So the growth outlook is very, very difficult or was very difficult before this happened in the developed world and is likely to be increasingly the case. But in Asian emerging markets, you have still got this young population with rising real income growth and 
lots of savings and arguably lots of pent-up demand for goods and services going forward from here against the backdrop of scope to reduce interest rates further and, and you know, much lower debt loads than they have in the developed world. If Asia and emerging markets do come out of this first as well, I mean, that remains to be seen, but they're unlikely to be you know, significantly dragged back by the cost of this uh, compared to the developed world. So I don't think it alters the outlook at all. In fact, I think in many ways it actually enhances the outlook for Asia and emerging markets going forward from here. And remember that in terms of growth at the company level of cash flows and dividends, that's where we continue to see great strides in this environment. Um, you know, even when t- things are tough because the leverage is so low at the corporate level in Asia and emerging markets relative to elsewhere. So much more flexibility in the balance sheets as well. Thank you very much for that, Bruce. For the last part of this episode, we are over to Theodore Diloff, who has selected another fund from Interact Investors' Super 60 list of preferred funds to talk about. This week, I focus on Mangio G Continental European Growth, which is designed to offer exposure to quality European companies. Since 2014, the fund has been managed by Rory Pov, who has nearly 30 years' experience of running European mandates. Each company in which he invests must pass several strict criteria, such as demonstrating strong leadership position and growth potential before being included in the highly concentrated portfolio of approximately 30 stocks. They could be of any size and from any country or industry in continental Europe, which makes the fund's investable universe's broadest 2,000-plus opportunities. In terms of sectors and country allocations, what does the fund invest in? Although highly concentrated, the fund is well-diversified in terms terms of country and sector exposure. The top three countries where the manager finds opportunities currently are Germany, France and Switzerland. In terms of sectors, the fund favors information technology, consumer discretionary and materials. It's interesting that the fund's lack of exposure to cyclical sectors such as financials, for example, has helped performance in recent months. The majority of the fund is invested in multinational companies. The top three holdings are the German software giant SAP, the Danish bioscience company CHR Hansen, and the French personal care leader L'Oreal. So for you, what makes the fund special? A few things could be mentioned here. One would be the investment process. Paul takes unique approach and divides the companies uh, in his portfolio into two types, established leaders and emerging winners. The established leaders are quality businesses and well-known names representing at least 50% of the fund, while emerging winners could be riskier and companies that are expected to provide more growth in the portfolio and can account up to a third of the overall fund. Everything mentioned so far could be justified by the fund's performance. The manager delivered exceptional returns, both over the short and the long term. The strategy has also stood the recent sell-off extremely well, and while year-to-date the European market is still negative at minus 7%, the fund is 6% up, making a relative return of over 13%. And which sort of investors would the fund particularly suit? This fund would be suitable for relatively cautious investors seeking growth opportunities in continental Europe. It could be used as a core part of a portfolio, providing exposure to quality businesses at a very competitive price. Its ongoing charge fee is 0.9%. Thank you very much, Theodore, and to, uh, to all of our guests. That's it for now. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Thank you for listening. 